Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. I'm Devin Kadayama, and you're listening to The Bay, local news to keep you rooted. Filipinos and Filipinex people have been in Stockton for a century. And what started as a push to preserve that history is now a driving force for community organizing in the city. I think we're definitely building on that legacy here and really trying to make it more robust and inclusive to to be responsive to um, the pandemic and movements that are happening at the same time for racial justice. Today, the history of Filipino organizing in Stockton's Little Manila and how it shaped the lives of a new generation of activists. I think that Stockton was really the catalyst for Filipinx culture in California. Shailen Martos is a production assistant for The Bay, and she also reported this story. It's really important to talk about Stockton because it has been overlooked for so long. And when people think about organizing, they don't often think about the organizing, the, the century-long history of organizing by Filipinx people in Stockton. I didn't know that there was something um, so deep here in the city that I grew up in or that I call my hometown. Donald Denaire is a youth educator with Little Manila Rising. I was born in Daly City, California in the early 90s. My family, they didn't even come to Stockton or the Central Valley until um, when there was like that housing boom in the, in the late 90s and early 2000s. And they grew up not really feeling as supported by the community. I think being more than Filipinx and a person of color here in Stockton, there was also my, my queer identity and my gender non-binary identity. And at the time, I didn't have language. I wasn't out. I was still in the closet. And they are a Filipinx person whose parents came from the Philippines. So it was quite a traditional household. And their family is quite traditional. So they didn't have the terminology to explain how they felt because there was no one in their lives to teach them that. There was no one in their lives to explain queer identity or to explore that with. So they grew up thinking, you know, I really got to get out of here. I left Stockton in 2011 to go to school in UC San Diego. I thought this idea of if I left Stockton, if I left my community, my family, that I would um, feel safe enough to come out to myself because I was suffering from um, chronic depression and anxiety. 
It didn't seem like Donald at that point in time thought that Stockton would be a safe place to return to. I'm third generation midnight from Stockton. My grandparents and parents were farm workers. And um, they worked hard so that I could be here today. So, so while Donald was at UC San Diego, they saw this talk from Dr. Don Bahulana Mabalan, and she specifically focused on Stockton, which is where she grew up. Dr. Mabalan was doing talks for her book, Little Manila is in the Heart, which is specifically about Little Manila in Stockton. But of course, it's as historians and activists, hindsight is twenty twenty. These men are going on strike because they had been for 30 to 40 years. And that was the first time that Donald actually learned about Little Manila in Stockton, or at least more about Little Manila and why it's important. And they realized that their history and their culture in the place that they grew up was something that they never understood or was never taught to them. And of course, in Stockton, um, Assemblymember Rob Monson talked about this poster that's hanging in his wall, right? Extreme racism and white supremacy is meeting these Filipinos everywhere they go across the West Coast. And what kind of impact did this have on Donald at the time? Donald said that that talk changed their life. I kind of wanted to change that reality for young people now, coming back to Stockton, coming back to Little Manila and really making sure that young people know their history and know that they can change um, their community in in a way that makes them feel safe and and wanted and loved and belong. And meeting Don and understanding that they could get involved in ethnic studies in Stockton really gave them the idea and gave them the push to come back to Stockton and do the work there. That history must have been so powerful to learn for Donald. Can we talk about some of that history um, that that probably a lot of people don't know about? So how did so many Filipinos end up in Stockton in the first place? After the Philippine-American War, more Filipinos started to come over to the United States. It started off with some students, and then there was a large influx of cheap labor. A lot of people who came to California settled in the San Joaquin Valley, and they started to work as farm laborers. So during the 1920s and 1930s, up until the 1940s, Stockton in San Joaquin Valley in California was the largest concentration of Filipino people outside of Manila. Filipinos were not allowed to buy property or move and and rent property north of Main Street. So I spoke with Leatrice Bantillo Perez, and I call her Manang Leti, and a lot of people call her Manang Leti because she is part of that Manang generation that was in Little Manila during the 20s through the 40s. And as we walked down the street, hello, hello, ay, kamusta kayo? You know, very friendly. And the men felt good because at least somebody recognized them as human beings. And she is 92 years old. She grew up in Little Manila. She was born there. And she's lived in Stockton her entire life. There were a lot of Filipino bachelors. You know, they were in their late 20s, mid to late 20s. 
And there were very few Filipino families at that time in Stockton. This is in the early 30s. They still had these very traditional aspects of their culture, but they were also in a completely different environment. In those days, I, you were lucky if you had 20 suitors because there were a few families with daughters. You know, they, the men were very generous. Of course, you know, they were anxious to court uh, and eventually marry one of the girls uh, since there were so few of us. For me, that just really illustrates how there was this traditional culture that they were trying to uphold. They were trying to uphold family values, that, but at the same time, they were trying to deal with living in America and the work that they were doing, the amount of money that they had, the places that they could go, the businesses that they could be patrons to. I mean, the, the, the fact that there are so few women speaks to the policies that kind of governed immigrants at that time, Filipino immigrants at that time. What were some of the biggest struggles for Filipinos during that time in the 30s and the 40s when, when Leti was growing up? For Filipinos in Stockton, a lot of that work was in asparagus. Bending over and cutting asparagus is really a stoop work. And um, I believe the Filipinos were the best uh, asparagus cutters because of their stature. Sometimes the farm laborers had their wages cut or not so great working conditions. In 1939, Lethe was 10 years old, and she witnessed the 1939 Good Friday asparagus strike. Imagine, about 7,000 Filipinos did not go into the field. At that time and still today, they often live on company government-sanctioned camps. So when these workers went on strike, they had nowhere to stay. So the community rallied around them and gave them places to stay in the churches, in the fraternity houses, and people like Leti's mother cooked for them. My mother cooked big kettles of uh, chicken stew, and some of the men would come and sit on our porch and eat there. They decided to start forming unions. And they formed the union called Bala, Filipino Agricultural Labor Association. And they started organizing each other. And that was a big turning point for the Stockton community. So there's this early 20th century history in Stockton, farm workers, mostly men, community building. How does the Filipino community change over the years? So Filipinos were actually encouraged to fight in World War II. And after World War II, they were granted citizenship, which allowed them to own businesses and property and bring wives over from the Philippines. So there were a lot more families after that time. And throughout the 60s, there was more labor organizing where Filipino farm workers and leaders like Larry Itliong created unions with other farm working communities like the Mexican and Chicanx organizers Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta. Larry Itliong established the Filipino Farm Labor Union in 1956 in Stockton. He co-founded the United Farm Workers, and Larry was actually the one to convince Cesar Chavez to join the Delano Grape Strike of 1965.
But after the 60s and around the 70s and the 80s, there was urban renewal programs in Stockton. There were a good amount of buildings that were torn down in order to make a crosstown freeway. And what effect did that have on the Filipino population in Stockton? Businesses were shuttered. Buildings were knocked down. Older folks who who worked in the fields passed on. And not only did they start to lose these these buildings, they lost their businesses, but then also the immigration policies were changing so that the new Filipino folks that were coming in were more skilled workers or professionals who were many, many of them were doctors or nurses that didn't have a lot of connections to the farm labor history or to Little Manila. There are a lot fewer Filipinx people in the San Joaquin Valley than there used to be. In the 1920s, there are about 100,000 Filipinos living on the West Coast and about 15,000 Filipinos in Stockton. But now, Filipinos only make about 7% of the population in Stockton. So there are a lot fewer and not very many Filipinx people live in Little Manila anymore. Coming up, how an effort to preserve the rich history of Stockton's Little Manila inspired a younger generation of Filipinos in Stockton to return home. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on the Bay Curious podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey, what's up? I'm Erica Cruz Guevara, the host of The Bay. Donations keep independent journalism alive and healthy. And you support outstanding journalism when you support KQED. So if you haven't yet, check out donate.kqed.org slash podcasts. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcasts with an S. I want to come back to Dr. Don Mabalon, the historian who taught all this history about Stockton's Little Manila to people like Donald. How significant is her work in our understanding of Little Manila's history today? Don actually took all of her research and wrote a book called Little Manila is in the Heart, which I mentioned earlier. There had never been a work like that before that told the history of Little Manila in Stockton. So she's an extremely prolific historian. She and her friend Dylan Delvo, in response to the tearing down of these buildings in Little Manila, created an organization called Little Manila Rising. I'm Dylan Delvo, executive director of Little Manila Rising. After these buildings are destroyed, we start raising funds to um, mark the area so that people know that, hey, this is a significant to not just Filipino-American history, but just American history. And Little Manila Rising started off as a historical preservation organization, and it's since shifted 
especially after Dawn passed from an asthma attack in 2018. You know, we lost so much when she left us. Um, but instead of kind of recoiling, we doubled down and we kind of accelerated all of the work that we were doing. And although our roots, of course, are in Philippine-American history, our actions are actually in racial equity. After Dawn's death, they started doing advocacy for public health, environmental justice, education outreach for COVID-19, immigration help, mental health. So they really have branched out from the original historical preservation. You, know, you just stay in historic preservation. You just tell this story that destroyed our community and not acknowledge that that same freeway that destroyed your community is still killing people today. What Dylan told me is that, you know, isn't this all connected to historical preservation? We see Little Manila not just as this place for Filipino uh, history, but also as a symbol of marginalization. Dr. Don Mabalon's work to document the history of Stockton and create Little Manila Rising eventually inspires a new, younger generation of Filipinos in Stockton to return home and contribute to the community in a new way. They have 14 full-time and part-time staffers at Little Manila Rising. 11 of those people were originally from Stockton, left to go to school, and then came back. They learn about the ethnic studies, they learn about the history, they learn about the history of organizing, the history of Little Manila, the history of Stockton, San Joaquin Valley as a whole. And then they decide, you know, this is something that I want to be a part of. And they really welcomed me with open arms in terms of um, finding a home. So Donald Denaire makes this decision to go against everything that they had believed before, since they've learned about ethnic studies, since they've learned about queer identity, and they decide to come back to Stockton because they want to foster relationships with the youth there to make them feel more supported, to make them feel prideful of their identities. After all this student organizing and, and learning about ethnic studies, like I'm so blessed to come back to the city that I grew up in and be able to contribute to learning more about our community here. So they move back to Stockton and they start to teach in an after-school program that Little Manila Rising created. It's called the Little Manila After School Program. And at the beginning of the year, Donald and the other educators meet with the students and ask them, what do you want to learn? What kind of leaders do you want to be? And then they frame their lesson plans around that, their workshops around that. When you compare the organizing that's happening in Little Manila Rising today to what's happened in the past when it was you know, mostly men, farm workers, when Letty was growing up, how do you think it's different? So they, their understanding of identity is much more, I would say it's much more holistic. You know, Donald experiences life as a queer person as a gender non-binary person, as a person who is involved and interested in social justice, a person who studies and learns from the Black Panther Party tactics, who pays attention to everything else that's going on today, especially trying to work with other organizing groups in order to make things more inclusive for people. We're, we're kind of uh, more responsive to to kind of like the building movements that are happening in the past years, um, namely, you know, building solidarity with the Black community. Educators like Donald are 
consistently learning from the organizing practices of the people before, or of the Manong Manong generation, of the farm workers. It's like building on the shoulders of giants. I think we're definitely building on this legacy of um, the historic Little Manila neighborhood of, uh, you know, the Filipino farm laborers, the Manongs, the Manangs, who really relied on each other um, and looked to each other for community, for love, for belonging. I think that back in the 20s and then in the 60s, there was this homogenous identity of Filipino people. There are these young bachelors coming over, they work in the fields, they buy dope suits, they go to the dance halls, they go to the movie theaters, they try to marry somebody, it's very difficult. So really what they needed was community that looked out for them. A lot of them were alone. And nowadays, you have all of these different people who are trying to come together to organize not just farm labor, but they also want to organize with the Black Lives Matter movement, with the Me Too movement, with queer and indigenous human rights. And it's just, there are so many more things that we think about when we think about our identity and when we think about community nowadays. So I, I truly believe that that's the main difference is that before, it was a very homogenous idea of what the community needed. And now, our needs are much more complex. Thanks to Shailen Martos for reporting this story. This project was part of San Francisco State University's Raul Ramirez Diversity Fund Internship. This episode was produced by Erica Cruz Guevara and Alan Montecilio. And when she's not our guest on the show, Shailen is our production assistant. Isa Mendoza writes our Friday newsletter. Our podcast leadership team is Jessica Placek, Kiana Mogadam, Erica Aguilar, Vinnie Tong, Ethan Tobin Lindsay, and Holly Kernan. The Bay is made by your local public media station, KQED. I'm Devin Kadiyama. That's it from us to you. Talk to you later. Sorry, that's my alarm to feed my cat. She'll be fine. Hi, I'm Sasha Koka, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey, that's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. 
And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.